Hello everyone and welcome back to Yeah, I Got an Effing Job with a Liberal Arts Degree. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Jeff Crane, Professor and Higher Education Administrator, and this podcast is about the role of liberal arts in our society. If you haven't already, please check out the first two episodes of the show, which include an interview with Eric Riggs, who is Dean of Cal Poly Humboldt's College of Natural Resources and Sciences, and a discussion with P.J. Hale, my former student who has a master's in history and is now operations manager within Intel Finance's Data and Reporting Center of Excellence. This podcast has been an idea of mine for a while and has felt really good to get it out into the world. Thank you so much for listening and let us know what you think. We also appreciate the shares and comments on social media. Please keep it up. My guest today is Dr. Jackie Clark. Dr. Clark is Associate Professor interim associate dean and college chair of the College of Education and Counseling at St. Martin's University in Lacey, Washington. She is also the program director of the Masters of Education, Higher Education and Student Affairs and the director of the PhD in Leadership Studies. Jackie is a great fit for the show because of her deep knowledge of university cultures and processes, her commitment to higher education as a greater societal good and her Bachelor of Arts in Art History, a good liberal arts background. All right, that's it for now. Thanks again for listening to the show and sharing it with others who may be interested. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a very high rating and a great review. Welcome back to uh, our newest episode of Yeah, I Got an Epping Job with a Liberal Arts Degree. And my guest today is Dr. Jackie Clark. She's the Associate Dean for the College of Education and Counseling at St. Martin's University, a um, Benedictine Catholic University in Lacey, Washington, which is next to Olympia, for those who don't know what Lacey is. She also is the Director for the uh, PhD in Leadership and also the Director for higher uh, the Master's in Higher Education and Student Affairs. And I am really excited to have Jackie here today because I was able to work with her when I was Interim Dean for the College of Education and Counseling and have found her to be a very um, a wonderful colleague and also someone who has some strong and powerful opinions about education and values it in the same way, the liberal arts education that, that I do. So welcome to the show, Dr. Clark. Thanks, Dr. Crane. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, you uh, will try and keep it on time because I could talk for hours and hours about the liberal arts and education and all of that. So I'm going to do my best. All right. I appreciate it. And we'll go ahead and flip over to first names if that's okay. Absolutely. Uh, So Jackie, tell us a little bit about your background in academics and how you came to the role you're in today. Sure. Um, yeah, I have kind of a, you know, maybe a slightly different path than some other academics. So starting at the beginning, I um, earned my bachelor's degree at Randolph, well, what was then Randolph-Macon Women's College, um, liberal arts institution, all women, and had an amazing time there, which we can talk about uh, a little bit later. And uh, from there, I went straight into a master's program uh, in higher ed and student affairs, uh, very similar to the one I'm now leading. 25 years later, um, mostly at that point because I was on a one path and then I ended up with a supervisor as a very involved student. One of the many things I was involved with was working in residence life. Um, and that year we had, uh, the university had hired their first master's credentialed student affairs professional who ended up being my supervisor. Uh, so sometime in the first semester, she said, uh, you should do student affairs as a profession. Well, 
again, most people don't necessarily know that it's a profession um, because it's big and it's broad and it makes it a little difficult to kind of capture easily. So she told me about it and I went to uh, Virginia Tech um, and met with the faculty there. Uh, again, things were a little, uh, maybe a little more casual uh, years ago. She called her faculty and set up an appointment for me. So long story short, I ended up doing a master's degree straight out of undergrad, which I really would not have expected as a first gen student. Uh, that wasn't necessarily on my radar. Then I worked in student affairs for many years. Um, and I came uh, back to academia when I was 44. I decided I wanted to pursue a doctorate and become a faculty member and teach. Uh, so I went through all the processes of discerning programs and doing visitations. And, um, and that was actually a lot of fun and ended up landing at University of Georgia, uh, where I finished my doctorate in 2017. Um, I was really lucky at the time uh, when I finished starting to job search, St. Martin's University had just um, was just putting out their call for a faculty member to lead a master's degree in higher ed and student affairs. So for me, it was a double positive because I wanted to do that teach in that in that field, but also I had been essentially doing the the operational parts of running a program while I was at University of Georgia. So it was a wonderful opportunity um, to be able to start a program, uh, sort of put your, you know, your own stamp and fingerprint on it. Um, and so, and then, yeah, so fast forward here to 2023 and I'm doing that program. And then I had the opportunity to lead the new PhD in leadership studies. So that has challenged me in very different ways, doctoral education. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, doctoral education is different. Doing doctoral education at a university with one doctorate, uh, it, yeah, but you know, it's taught me a lot. I feel like I've been on a bit of an accelerated faculty life path, but it, a lot of fun. So, yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's safe to say you and I have some shared trauma in regarding to launching that program. <laughs> some of the work that needed to be done. You really picked up a program that wasn't complete and, and made it very strong. And I, that's one reason I was able to appreciate your skills as we work together on that. Um, yes, so. and I would not have. I will take this moment to say I would not have been successful without you serving as my dean at that time and offering me the space. Uh, to have those conversations and to work through problems and to decide some of the key things uh, regarding the structure of that program. So it was definitely a partnership. Um, <laughs> I don't, couldn't have done it by myself. Thank you. That's very generous. I appreciate it. Um, so so you talked about being able to teach, but I imagine you don't get to teach that much right now, right? You're doing a lot of administrative <laughs> work. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the in the academic structures being what they are, you do get, you know, uh, space and time for doing different kinds of work. And now that I'm also uh, working with our counseling department to uh, go through their accreditation pro process, um, it has pulled me away a little bit. But honestly, I've kept, uh, kept my two con content courses in the master's program. And then I do oversight for uh, internships and experiential learning in both the master's and the PhD program. So um, I have kept the, the teaching side up. And that's probably the reason I maybe won't see myself uh, fully embracing academic leadership and moving into full dean roles. Uh, as much as I love it, 
I don't want to be pulled away from the teaching and the and the students. Uh, so I've kind of here been able to reach a sort of half and a half balance, which works really well. Yeah, there's wisdom in that. You know, I, I always teach, but I, it's almost impossible, right? It's right. constantly a struggle. And then, yeah, so um, that's great. And I do remember like, you know, Tiffany and Karina and Ashley just raving about your classes when you got Aww. there and started teaching. They were just like, oh, Jackie's so cool. Uh, uh, thank anyways, you. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about your current role. Some of the, you know, you've gotten into it some, but some of the crucial things you do in your leadership role, you know, running, you know, helping like, I mean, this accreditation for counseling is going to be huge, right? Um, but running the leadership studies program and other things. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I guess one of the features I would say in terms of my work life uh, is that I need I need newness, I need challenge, I need uh, things to work on, I or I get bored very easily. So I bring some of this on myself uh, in terms of how much, how many projects can you take on at one time? But that's a function of, you know, I like, I like my everyday to be different. So I've, I really enjoy right now the master's program. I came in really feeling very confident that I knew what to do with that program. Like there are standards that we follow nationally in, in that arena. So uh, content wise, I knew what needed to be offered. The program had been set up in a way that, you know, I really thought was appropriate uh, based on those standards. And so having built the courses for that program, um, it's really just running kind of like a fairly well-oiled machine right now. So that's not as heavy a lift. The PhD, we are getting to that point. Uh, this is four years into that. So I feel like um, we graduated our first group last spring. And I feel like now I've really been able to experience uh, the challenges and the successes from start to finish, at least from the program and the student's perspective. So obviously there's always work to do. What I'm going to do now is move into curriculum revision and work on putting that through uh, during this academic year. Um, you start figuring out sort of what works and doesn't work with academic programs. And I guess one good thing is um, being a small, you know, there are pros and cons for every institutional type, you know, whether you're at a community and technical college, a four-year, uh, you know, private, a public, a large research-intensive university, but I will say, you know, being at a small private, uh, there is space to make change, and it's it's not always as difficult as it can be. The bigger the system, the more levels, the more layers, uh, and that creates challenge of its own. So it's nice here that I feel like I have some autonomy and community that, you know, I'm doing focus groups and we're going to, you know, work on that curriculum, you know, update and, and, and you figure out who your students are. I mean, one thing everybody's grappling with right now um, in higher education is um, shrinking populations of undergraduate students. And so there's a little bit of a competition out there for students and, you know, every university wants to keep its numbers where they want, want them to right. be. And so everybody's in this um, process right now of, uh, deciding discernment, you know, what, right. what is, what makes us different? 
what here is, you know, but also part of that isn't just trying to, it's not really, you know, a game. It's so much figuring out who your students are, who your real competitors are, and, you know, really working through that, you know, deeply. And so I've learned, you know, in my program, sort of who my students are, like where they're coming from in the community and, and around the state, and even from a, a state next door. Um, and then you can kind of work your curriculum partly then to meet their needs. And so that iterative process is um, pretty interesting. And then the third thing, uh, besides the two academic programs I've been doing is this uh, associate deaning, um, which is really just uh, being there to support and assist our our counseling program to get through their K-CREP with accreditation. And right. I had the privilege of doing that at another university um, and going through that process. So I had some experience uh, in what that looks like and what you need to do to prepare for that. So I'm really serving kind of more like a cheerleader and a safety net um, and a support for the chair in that department who uh, started chairing the same time this process started. So it was also very challenging for her to jump into two really big roles and big processes. Um, so anyway, that's sort of the landscape of what I do here. <laughs> yeah, and that's a lot. I mean, you're managing a lot and I don't know how you do it. Um, but if I never hear the the letters K crep ever again, I'll be happy because we talked about it so much. But but seriously, if and when you get that when you get that accreditation, let me know and I'll send Johanna a card because uh, oh yeah, we spent so much time on that and yes. it's, it's nice that you're making progress. I want to back up to something you were saying, explore that a little bit more, um, which is to say. One thing I like about St. Martin's, and and it's similar to the CSU, is the emphasis on on access to education, right? And um, and of course, in the Roman uh, Catholic intellectual tradition with the universities, that, that's really crucial. Um, and schools like Cal Poly Humboldt, where I work, and St. Martin's University, where you work, we um, tend to be uh, overrepresented when it comes to first generation Pell Grant eligible uh, students of color which is what we want. It's exactly what we're working for. When I say overrepresented, the problem we have right now in this country is those schools that serve those populations well are going out of business, right? And so we're going through this arc now of after, you know, decades of increasing access to education, uh, where it's decreasing as schools like that go out of business and other elite institutions aren't as good at recruiting those students. Um, and uh, I guess I'm speechifying a little bit, but uh, do you have any thoughts related <laughs> to that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, that is such a huge um, issue to unpack. But I, but yeah, I mean, first to say that that is that is going to be um, the reality of where we're headed. I mean, first gen lower SES, Pell eligible, a term we use in academia all the time, which says something about sort of your SES, uh, you know, grouping, that's going to be the norm now. And so, you know, what universities I think are um, struggling with and, and truly let's, you know, let's think about those numbers. You know, what, what people generally hear in the media is a lot of conversation around what we might characterize as elite institutions, things happening at Harvard and Stanford and, right, right. you know, these, these, yeah. and people recognize those names. And so, I mean, I understand from a, from a, um, media standpoint, uh, those garner, uh, gets, gets people's attention, but in reality, 95%, maybe even higher, uh, of universities 
we're all struggling in the same similar ways. And part of that is we are trying to figure out how to best serve our students. If I can um, interject and, real quick. Yeah, please. I, I, want, I just want to just sort of do a testify statement here. Um, yeah. uh, I could give a flip what Harvard, Harvard and Stanford are doing. Right. And, and we're doing the real work, right? We're doing so much crucial work that just doesn't get as much uh, coverage in, in the media. But go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it just skews people's um, thoughts and opinions, because if they, you know, accidentally, and certainly not on purpose, extrapolate those stories as indicative of what's happening in higher education, it's not, that's not accurate. And so the stories that don't make most of the media are what's happening at 95% of the institutions out there, uh, in terms of who their students are, who their faculty are, you know, who, what, what are they, the connections with the community? I mean, people want to dig deep. Uh, every institution generally puts out some kind of documentation or annual report that uh, really quantifies their relationship to the state, to the local community. I mean, that might be in, uh, you know, numbers in terms of how much revenue we generate for the surrounding area. When I worked at a large state institution, it was a very lengthy document that went into, you know, deep detail about how agriculture departments are contributing to state agriculture. I mean, there are all these connections with the, the state that any university sits in and even more global than that. And so you can find that information and really get a much better sense of that deep tie between any institution. I don't care if it's a small uh, liberal arts school in a rural community or it's a large state institution in a larger you know, area, those ties uh, are deep. And so that's not necessarily the story uh, that generally makes it into popular media. You know, it's got to yeah. be more dramatic than that. Yeah. So you have to, you know, understand that that's not what you're hearing. But anyway, to your original point, um, the students we're serving now are this are generally the population we're discussing. And I think what's the root of a lot of the challenges we're having is simply trying to update our processes and the way we do things to serve those students. And so uh, folks in, you know, academia is a little bit iceberg-like in that it moves somewhat slowly when it comes to change. Uh, occasionally things push uh, change more quickly, but, you know, again, with the amount of layers it takes to make decisions, to change curricula, to change uh, your institutional structure, those things, you know, they're slow. And, you know, and students are changing. I would say, you know, not just generationally, okay, every four or five years, uh, the conversations we're having in class are different. The things that they relate to are a little bit different. Like, listen, this here's- is, a, This is why I teach, right? Because right, the, right. the students change so quickly. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. You stop out yeah. for three or four years, and when you come back <laughs> into a classroom, you're going to be like, whoa, what is- Where's what our rubric, Dr. Crane? I'm like, rubrics? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I heard recently someone made an excellent, I follow a lot of faculty on social media and we get into faculty conversations about some of these things. And, and of course, some of it we laugh because generationally, obviously I'm you know pretty far from undergrads or even young grads right now. So the references I would tend to use are obviously uh, dated and you know I'm Gen X all the way. So they're Gen X related. But here's one that was shocked me this week. Um, a number of people were saying that just a couple of years ago, students were all, they at least understood Hamilton, like this amazing theater production that was taking the U.S. by storm, seemed like everybody, I feel like everybody now we're in the Taylor Swift it. era, yeah. like everybody has seen this show, everybody's, you know, and now this, this fall, uh, people are 
saying that they're um, who teach more undergrads too, that students don't know what Hamilton is. Oh my so God. Just that quickly. It's in the zeitgeist and then it's gone. So when I so, reference REM, they have no idea what I'm talking oh about. My, I know it's, it's a little, that hurts my heart a little bit, but um, From Athens, what can I Georgia, say? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So let's, let's get back to your undergraduate experience. Uh, so you talk about what now called Randolph college, uh, mm-hmm. but it was Randolph Macon Women's College. Am I getting yes. that right? When you were there, yes. uh, your major. Uh, and I do want to say one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show early. Um, I'm sorry. One of the reasons Abigail and I, uh, Abigail Smithson, the producer for mm-hmm. the show, wanted to get you on the show early is your undergraduate degree in art history, <laughs> which was a punchline in car talk. It, some of us are a little older or remember. Yep. And, and we thought that was like sort of unnecessarily insulting. And Right now, art history is like a really hot field, right? Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, if you'll talk about your undergraduate experience, get into your major uh, as an art, art historian, that would be great. Yeah, um, I know that is funny. I, you know, uh, yeah, I've been the recipient for many, many years of, you know, the the butt of the joke and everyone talks about useless degrees and what are you going to do with that? So you can add in a few You're others. You're job. I have a right? good job. You got yes. an epic job with a liberal arts degree. You Go got ahead. it. Sorry. You got it. Uh, <laughs> and so by PS, so do basically all of my uh, fo- my colleagues and friends from college. And, you know, the that is, you know, that is data that can be uh, analyzed easily. Anyway, um, right. So I, you know, w- the ethos where I went to, to school again, uh, set the tone here, you know, at the time, 800, all women all live on campus. So very immersive experience. Um, also benefiting from having those upperclassmen there when you're a first year student, uh, they really, you know, taught, taught us the ropes. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, very, very embedded culture there. So the culture was based in an honor code. It was, which bought us a lot of freedom. And so, you know, I remember the first weeks there. I mean, I was super homesick being 800 miles away from home. Um, but the upperclassmen were very kind and, uh, you know, we lived with each other in, in these residence halls and, you know, but they also spent plenty of time talking to us about the history of the institution and, you know, and this honor code life that we live where we could have self-scheduled exams and you could leave your backpack and your materials in the library and go eat in the dining hall and come back and it would not be disturbed. I mean, there was this, you know, I yeah. noticed in their language on the website, they talk about a noble life, right? And I just don't normally see that in marketing material, but, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, and actually, physically, the school was um, between a river on the backside of the property. And then it's beautiful. In the, it is beautiful in the middle of this lovely residential area of of Lynchburg, Virginia. And so we were landlocked in terms of, you know, capacity, but we had, a, a you know, a, a lovely property and it was literally surrounded by a red brick wall and so one of our you know things you talk about as a as a student and a graduate is you know behind the red brick wall and we were also taught realistically that life behind the red brick wall was not going to be like the rest of your life so this is a real privilege to get to spend four years in this rarefied space uh, where you lived by an honor code where you got to experience you know this this unique um college life. And so I recognize, you know, there's deep sort of privilege uh, about that. And that was, you know, probably not going to be like, you know, the rest of your life. Um, 
But the way that they it worked there is, you know, our early advising for students, uh, you weren't allowed to declare a major until the first semester of your junior year. Can and I say so that I, I absolutely love that? I mean, I, I love that. And that's, of course, bucking the current trend around you must declare your major now. But yeah, right. go ahead. And part of that is, you know, part of that was also understanding. And trust me, as a first gen student, I didn't know uh, some of this. Uh, you know, I try to untangle what I think I actually understood then because I understand more now. So trying to go back, I certainly didn't have, you know, attach any meaning to that at the time. Uh, we just about 75 percent of our credits were across uh, all departments. And so, I mean, it's a very gen ed you know, focused institution. That was the idea of what a liberal arts education meant. It wasn't a vocational a training uh, in, in the sense it was connected directly to a career. That was not what we were there for. It was to gain a broad understanding of the world. Uh, so, you know, language, history, philosophy, um, the sciences, uh, you know, we had a little, you had You're to take naming all the programs that are being cut across the country. Yeah, yeah. right. Also <laughs> the programs sciences. that help you kind of understand how the world works. Right, right. So yeah. very, you know, very disturbing the way those things are being talked about, you know, in some spaces today, but, um, but anyway, so I had this great advisor and she, you know, you basically start the first year felt a little bit like just a, a really difficult high school schedule. Had so many at math and science and all the, you know, history and all this. Um, so it wasn't super difficult. And then she, I remember being, you know, having these conversations around, don't worry about right now, what you're going to do after college, be present here now in the courses you're in, be present. Don't constantly be thinking about the, you know, what you're going to do with a thing. Just take it in. And the pieces of the puzzle will start coming together the more you learn. The more curious you'll become, the more you study things you've never studied before. Right. You can't know what you don't know. Right. And she said, we will continue those conversations and you will, you know, and it became pretty clear after some introductory coursework that art history was my thing. Yeah. So this is absolutely critical. Uh, the, the, the increasing pressure on students to pick majors and of course pick majors that'll lead directly to jobs is really cutting off this opportunity you talk about to explore. I had zero interest in history. I, I thought historians <laughs> were nerds and I thought I was cool. Right. And um, and I just clicked in with the right faculty and thought, oh my God, history is the best thing ever. Literature too, but I picked history in the end. Right. Um, <laughs> and so we're cutting off these pathways to exploring. And, and this is a, a discussion that needs to happen more amongst faculty, amongst administrative leadership. Um, so I'm I'm really happy that you're making this point so effectively. But 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 please go on. Thanks. So, um, I'd like to hear more about art history and what that did for you. Um, yeah, it, I know. Trying to piece back together, you know, I did a lot of art in high school. I mean, I was an I was an artist. I mean, I'll say that loosely. Oh, really? But what, um, what kind of art did you do? I did a lot of different. I did some watercolor. I, I like okay. to do. Um, things that might be considered that space between art and craft, like material culture. I liked uh, weaving and pottery and yeah. things that were physical, hands-on uh, building in some kind of way. But, you know, you get to college and I was in those courses too. But then I took, um, I had taken an art history course in high school. We actually had a basic art history class and I really liked it. So I was immersed in those courses too, the first and second year. And so it just, uh, it just clicked for me in a way that I guess anyone comes to love a particular topic. And it's probably a little bit the content, 
a lot of it just seemed to me, it just seemed natural for me to learn. It's hard to explain how, I guess the kind of things I thought were fairly easy, I started to notice that other people thought were really difficult. And so maybe that's part of it is I could memorize, I mean, we would just look at carousels. We had slides back then, you know, uh, old slides, right? (laughs) Not pre-computer era, no PowerPoints, just uh, carousels of slides. It took the faculty a long time to build a lecture with a slide carousel, let me say. <laughs> right? You got to make yeah. sure what you're talking about is what's on the screen and clicking I did forward. It. I and remember. Back. Yeah, yeah, God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you had two going at the same time because you'd have images side by side on the screen. But I could just memorize dozens, hundreds of images, paintings, where that, because we would have to, on a test, offer the title the year it was created, where it currently, where it currently is housed. So if it's in a museum, which museum and, you know, all of that. And I could just memorize, I don't know, I could memorize it just, it seemed like it was just fun. It was fun. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the fun really drew me in and I thought this is amazing. Plus there's this intersection of art history and history. So since I did like history, I became sort of immersed in this idea that history is a, is mostly a written and sometimes a verbal um, record of things that have potentially happened that we're regularly uncovering. But then these pieces of artwork were also telling that story. And so sometimes you'd have this really fun connection where something in a piece of art, let's say focus on painting, or it could be a material culture, you know, it said something about the community or there was something in the artist had chosen to paint that said something about that time in history. Or, you know, if you study um, um, the Dutch masters per se, you know, part of the fun there is a Dutch, uh, there was a lot of symbolism uh, in their artwork. So you started to learn all these fun things like, you know, a small dog being painted into this portrait is a symbol of fidelity and oh, the clothing okay. they wear had meaning and the things that were included in the, that the artist had chosen specifically, there was meaning hidden in there. Right. So it kind of became like this, you know, fun exercise of learning all of that. And then thinking about how it connected uh, one art teacher, art historian, you know, I studied with, you know, said nothing is created in a vacuum. Same for literature, same for any, you know, creative endeavor. So there's always a political undercurrent. There's always the connection to history and to the, the time that that is the time period that that piece is created within. Uh, there's all this other meaning to uncover. And that sort of became the fun of it for me is learning that and then connecting it over time or connecting it to, to, to history itself. So, yeah. So then I just went ahead and declared art history. And again, I wasn't really thinking, what would I do? I thought, you know, being a museum educator would be awesome uh, and would be lots of fun. And I thought people are intimidated when they go um, into museums, people, I was a docent at a museum for a while. And I, you know, I heard from a lot of people who sort of reluctantly came to visit when I talked to them, they would say, well, I don't know anything about art. So I never go to museums because who am I to, you know, go to a museum when I don't know anything about what's in here? And that was really like hurt my heart, you know, that to think yeah. that like, oh, we're, we want you to come. Like, we want you to come. This is a learning space. Like, we don't care if you don't, no one cares if you know anything. That's what these spaces are for. But, you know, they're also sort of 
often kind of rarefied spaces, you know, like a library. It's very quiet. It's has marble museums with marble floors and, you know, and it's very intimidating for a lot of people to consider going to a museum to learn something. So I had this idea yeah. that, you know, if you had good museum educators, it we would figure out how to invite more people into the space and and change their life through art. Yeah. Yeah. When you speak to those, <clears throat> I think of some of the great libraries I've been in that, you know, the idea was for those to be elevating, right? To, right. to like the old Gothic, Gothic cathedrals, to, to, to <laughs> be inspired, to, to feel the sublime. And, and I'm not finding my words really well, but, yeah. you know, the, the yeah. glory of, of the noble profession, you know, of, of education and learning and all of that. But I could also see where it's intimidating. I, um, one of, I thought of something while you were talking about art. It's interesting because um, going into my senior year at the Evergreen State College, my alma mater, um, whose motto, by the way, is Omnia Extaris, let it all hang out. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, and I was, I had jumped all over the place, right? I truly had no idea what I wanted to do, um, except just learn as much as possible. And um so I think my senior year, because you have to have a major there. You just do programs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're changing that now. But um, I was going to do more Russian studies, if I remember correctly. They had a great Russian studies program, Tom Rainey. And um, and then that summer, they were having a film series. And they showed, and a lot of people don't remember this film. It's called Incident and Owl Creek Bridge. And it's mm -hmm. based on an Ambrose Bierce short story. And he served in the Civil War. He's actually at Shiloh. And then wrote some real abstract uh, kind of creepy stories. I mean, great writer. Um, yeah. And um, it's an abstract film in black and white. And I don't want to give it away because it's a little, <laughs> there's a, there's a catch in there. Oh, okay. Um, but it, you know, the, the premise is this um, captured, I think union soldier, maybe Confederate. I can't remember. Um, he's being hung in the rope snaps and he escapes and then i'm going to stop there it's it's worth watching it's great oh okay but i watched this film and i've been doing lots of latin american politics as an activist and reading tons of stuff on american foreign policy and how it's mm -hmm. devastated latin america mm -hmm. and then um russian studies and all that literature and i thought you know i don't know a damn thing about american history <laughs> i just like <laughs> really didn't know anything about the civil war and you know i'm a total civil war geek now right and um and I went, and based on that piece of art, I went and flipped over to a completely different program, which then I had this professor, David Hitchens, who really inspired me, a, a passion for history, American history in particular. So I guess I I'm trying to make that. the point that art, you know, can have this significant impact for all of us, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, I it's why the accessibility part, you know, was forefront for me and thinking about, right. you know, I'm just this first gen kid, you know, what am I doing studying art history? I mean, it's such a leap, you know, to begin with, but I just did it like, it was very visceral. I just enjoyed it. And it was fun. And it was, you know, interesting. And it made me passionate about learning other things. The more I'm in that, the more I'm thinking, I'd really like to, you know, do more language work because so much of, you know, art history. Language. And then I, I was able to take courses at, um, we had a consortium group with surrounding institutions. So I was able to do an intensive Italian Renaissance at another uh, nearby university with a, a visiting faculty member. And then we had someone visit who uh, was doing Southeast Asian um, art, uh, African. I mean, I was really able to get a quite a 360, even at a small school with just a couple of faculty in that department. Yeah. 
I uh, so what in that phrase you use, what am I doing studying art history? I think very much speaks to the critical importance of accessibility of education and promoting liberal arts. So someone could come from a completely different background, not an elite background, yes. and say, I'm gonna be an art historian, right? Or a writer, an artist, a historian. I, I do we're, we're starting to push up against our timeline a little Ooh, bit. So okay. I want to jump forward some. I'm I'm sure. loving all of this, right? <laughs> Your brilliant analysis. I know we could do five-hour podcast. It wouldn't be a problem. And that's what everyone in America wants is a five-hour podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have only diehard fans. Let's do that and watch our ratings just go through the roof. Ooh, right? Um, yeah. So I'd like you to spend a little time talking about how your training in liberal arts has benefited you professionally and how even today you, you see um, skills out of liberal arts, uh, helping you as you manage, you know, three or four different areas and teach and everything else. Yeah, sure. Um, I know that is sort of, you know, the essential question. I mean, I fully understand. And, you know, before I get totally into that answer, I just want to make sure I don't miss saying that, you know, time, timing is everything and times change, right? So, you know, even as a first gen student, 25, okay, let me be honest, 30 years ago, closer. Um, there were some freedoms in, you know, that I was able to take advantage of that and some, you know, stresses that weren't the same stresses as families have now, mm -hmm. you know, I had a financial aid package. First of all, let, you know, transparency here, you know, the, the entirety cost wise for the institution back then was uh around $16,000 and that was you know housing food tuition books um i had a campus job a work study um but you know i was essentially able to do the thing where i could go to school and be fully immersed in it uh and I want to recognize that today an enormous portion of our undergrads are trying to do what I did, except they're working 20 and 30 yeah. and sometimes 40 hours a week. So I had a very privileged out. experience yeah. and my ability to be fully immersed in the work was partly because I had freedom of time to do that. So yeah. today it goes back to, you know, how we're supporting our students uh, in colleges today, too. So. Also, the pressure of what things cost um, has really pushed families and students to want to know these answers. My parents weren't pushing to know what I was going to do. Their mindset was, We're, we don't have an education that way. We just know that you and your, your brother need to go to college. College is the key. And they didn't really question much after that. And they didn't know what they didn't know, right? And so neither did I. Um, but today, families and students are seeking and they have access to more information. So it is a challenge we're going to have to continue to face is how we um, talk about the liberal arts and how we talk about skill development, which is where I'm headed with this, that you can take into any direction, which is essentially how we discussed that when I was an undergrad with my advisor, with faculty, is that, you know, subject matter is one thing, but we don't actually necessarily expect that you will stay in a in work that's directly tied to the subject matter, we are here to build the foundational skills through the work you do in the classroom and any particular subject so that you are curious about the world and are a lifelong student and want to learn things for the rest of your life that you have critical thinking skills that, you know, they never could have predicted back then the kind of skill and discernment young people need and everyone needs today in figuring out how to digest the 
fire hose of information coming at us through social media, through other, you know, through mainstream media, you know, how do you talk, how do you understand disinformation, misinformation, missing information, just inaccurate and incomplete reporting on things. Okay. Critical thinking. Um, I think one for me personally is because you had to figure a lot of things out. I think it's helped me and I've had numerous jobs over my, you know, course of my career that you, you learn how to manage change. You learn that change is the norm and that changing careers is normal and that people have their interests and your skills change as you get older and, and, you know, develop more. So I think the lack of fixation, um, as an undergrad on the career meant that we were fixated on the things that actually mattered. And so back to thinking about where my friends and colleagues are, I mean, we're a pretty tight community. I go to reunions. I, you know, stay in touch with my friends from that part of my life. And people went on to do all kinds of things. I mean, we had an almost 100% acceptance rate into medical school, into law school. I mean, we were prepping people. The university was prepping us as students to do anything we wanted. Um, But I think that it actually kept those options more open by not trying to come to college as a young person and declare a major immediately and get stuck in that. Now, I got an, so that was my norm because that's what I was used to. When I went to my master's program, I did work at Virginia Tech for a number of years after that. And I had student staff and it was very interesting because I hadn't necessarily been exposed to students in programs like engineering because we did not have an engineering program at my undergrad institution. And I started to see students And it was very sad who really hated what they were doing. I mean, it's a strong word, but they really did. But they were so stuck in these programs and majors that 95% of their coursework is that. I think at that point, there were those students had like two courses in their undergrad curriculum that were outside engineering. Well, and this is and and this is increasingly the trend. And of course, I'm you know, I'm seeing it in many places. Um, yeah. And to, to put them into this lockstep plan and accreditation, uh, accrediting bodies do this very intentionally, right? They, because then, you know, the program, people running programs like, oh, we don't have a choice because for accreditation. And I would love if I had the capacity to do the, the investigation to see the degree to which this is intentional, right? We don't yeah. want our engineers spending this much time learning poetry literature and history we're going to pile in as many courses into this as possible and um and i also want to say that you know i'm going back a little bit to what you were saying earlier the the um while we're having decreasing access to higher education um at the same time the point you're making it's it's exponentially more difficult because of cost and the need to work. This is feels to me very deliberate, right? This the slashing of taxes support higher education, the mining of the middle class, which has been going on since, you know, Reagan in particular. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, then this 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 um narrative around, well, you know, you just have to do STEM, right? Or or vocational fields. And and they all have value. But the, you know, this is the example I used was when SUVs were, everyone's buying SUVs and Detroit was saying, well, people want SUVs. Like, no, that's all your marketing. You know, you're not trying to sell people the electric Ranger you built, right? And um, 
And so that's what, you know, so they're coming in primed by admissions counselors and politicians and leaders of universities to say, what will this degree lead to in terms of a job? And my student needs to do, my child needs to do engineering. And I think, again, while those, you know, we're not in any way bashing those majors, they're important. We're, we're to your point specifically, we're cutting out their opportunity to explore and try different things. And then, of course, then we're undermining liberal arts, uh, broadly defined, and their ability to to even exist. And I want to, I want to, and but the other thing too is I think you've made a strong case for the liberal arts. When when and you said this very well, which is to say, when you could just do liberal arts, right? You could just do art history or history, then you're building out this remarkable skill set, right? That that's foundational. It makes you adaptive, innovative, creative, and and will allow you to explore all kinds of different opportunities and be successful, which is increasingly important in this ongoing, rapidly changing, precarious society, right, as we face any number of crises, right? But but rapid change, too. I mean, Lord. Um, so anyways. Yeah. I mean, there are certain realities. Um, I think that, you know, it's... And again, I fully appreciate that these pressures are are deep. Uh, you know that to, to be sitting with a college bound child today, as a family, uh, and for that student, I I you know I don't want to trade places with them. The pressure is just you know immense. And how am I going to pay for it? And then so you're thinking about every minute that I'm there doing this work. You know what am I getting out of this? What am I getting out of this? And so it's hard because it's also it, it's a <laughs> It's also another thing that's distracting just being present in a particular course and being able to just enjoy it and study it and immerse in it and maybe even have interesting conversations with your classmates out of oh, class. Wow. I mean, we do know that the vast majority of the real deeper learning doesn't happen necessarily in the class space. It's a oh, setup yeah. for those yeah. conversations to happen at dining halls and in the residence right. halls and in other spaces. I remember one of my favorite memories from Evergreen was this one professor kept referencing The Tempest. So a group of us went and bought, we got copies of The Tempest. We sat out in Red Square and we read the whole damn thing. I was right. like, oh, and I was like, Shakespeare's funny? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we really did sit around and have jokes? these. Yeah, we really did sit around in college sometimes yeah. in the hallways mm -hmm. and get into these conversations with each other outside of class. And, you know, everybody's majoring in different things. We're mm -hmm. taking different courses and then we're making these connections and going, yeah, but what about this? And what about, you know, how's that going to happen? And, you know, yeah. even back then we had a, um, um, there was a global, and I mean that literally in a sense of not global, like um, inclusive, but global, like literally around the world, this idea that we were going to be a global nation and we are going to move into a global society and that has happened in my lifetime so you know again you know understanding that you will always need to keep learning long past your college education because the change is going to change is going to be present and i mean that in, in a very accelerated way you know i'm the generation that lived through life before computers and here we are where everybody's got a computer uh more powerful than the you know first uh crap we sent to the moon yeah, in your right. back pocket yeah. you know the world right. of knowledge at your fingertips right. and i could never have predicted that when i was in college that we right. would just have you know but uh, careers change in one place academia also it's a little sticky sometimes is that we are all prepared as faculty in our own fields we attempt 
to stay, you know, current in those fields. But at the same time, we have to do this predictive work of figuring out what the future is going to be. So these students we have now, we should be training them now, but we also are here to think about what are going to be the majors we need in 10 years. Careers are going to keep changing. And for us to be living in the now, but also constantly trying to prepare for the future, it's very hard to do. And it's, you know, yeah. so we do tend to lag a little there um, because it just, you know, you're trying to do the thing you're doing now really well, but then you're also thinking I'm going to be outdated in just a matter of years. So we're also thinking like next. So yeah. I think yeah, a lot of those things are just skills I picked up then that have carried me till now. That's great. Thank you. So I want to push the envelope a little bit here. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I want to look more closely at the case du jour, West Virginia University. Um, with Given increasing nationalism, xenophobia, tendencies towards fascism in our country and in specific particular regions in our country, what are your thoughts about a flagship institution simply deciding that it's not going to train its students in languages, right, and cut programs in education? And, and knowing, of course, too, that we didn't mention this earlier, but that first-gen students, students of color, tend to be overrepresented as well in those majors, right? So I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on that. And then we'll close out by talking about your alma mater. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a, you know, we could spend a, a four episodes minimal <laughs> on this conversation alone. So where- And all the other schools that are doing it, right? We're just picking on West Virginia right now. Yeah, This isn't gonna be the first of this conversation. I mean, it's happening everywhere. And, 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 oh my gosh. So things that, you know, I would highlight, number one is, you know, there's been a concerted effort in the last few decades, slowly and then maybe more accelerated fashion to, uh, to create a lot of distrust uh, in our education systems. And of course, they're big and they're complex and they're complex and they serve millions of people. And so, you know, uh, trying to break that down is difficult. But the the sort of undergirding idea that, you know, people in a particular trained field, like there's no such thing as an expert. I guess that's what it would boil down to. When you start to dismantle the idea that people have knowledge and have what we would call expertise, uh, suddenly that's questionable. What what do these people really know? And you start creating this very conspiratorial, disturbing dismantling of the idea of education. Uh, And so, you know, you take one thing and you turn it into, you know, this entire ecosystem of why this, you know, you can't, this group can't be trusted. And so, you know, fast forward, those ideas grow and they have meaning. And then those, and you start bringing politics and other things into these spaces and you end up with this very painful, um, disturbing situation at West Virginia, you know, that institution is the only research intensive in the state. They have one, many, most states have it minimally two, if not more coming out of a, a, a history of how that happened in higher ed, but West Virginia has one. And so you think about the people, all, you know, universities are tied to their communities. And here's, you know, something that's really fundamental to understand that, you know, we are intertwined with our community in ways that maybe people 
don't always think about. So whether you're a small rural college and you might be the biggest employer in that area. And so for more than 100, 150 years, there's been this relationship uh, between a college, a university and its community. Most institutions now have uh, specific connections, you know, things that are revenue generating, you know, our facilities are shared by numerous other organizations in the community. We have centers that, you know, offer educational courses for community members, not just students. I mean, we work in both of these, all the work at a university campus isn't contained to that campus. It bleeds out into the, into the community. Um, so there's that. That's really important to understand. Yeah. Can I just I'll just jump in real quick because you yeah. made me think of something. We had a CFO at St. Martin's who like to say we can't be all things to all people. It's like the standard line. It's like, you know, bullet points for CFOs and presidents that want to cut programs. But we have a responsibility to reproduce the values and, and central ideas of society and a civil society. So what I think what you're articulating very well is West Virginia by cutting these programs is not. It's, it's abandoning its role in creating a healthy and re- society, a civil society, yes. reproducing central uh, uh, critical knowledge and et cetera. So sorry, but um, no, this is great. one of my beefs. Yeah. Yeah, that's great because what you're getting at is um, I teach a higher ed history class. And so this is like maybe the area I'm most excited about when right. talking about the history of our system. And we have a unique system compared to most of the rest of the world. I feel like but, I'm gonna have to bring you back for another episode. I know, I'm can, sorry. I can't, go, I just no, can't can keep go, it. No, that's good. I just, I, maybe we'll have a specific one. We go deeper on all this, yeah, but go yeah. ahead, go ahead. It'd be yeah. fun. So, I mean, what you're saying, I'm coming back to that. So you have this community tie, which you have to think about. And then secondarily too, to this fun, this fundamental understanding that when our system started in the first universities, when, you know, when we became a nation, the ethos at the time was that there were universities and education serve two purposes, a public good and a private good. So obviously, you know, people can, can figure that out, but the public good was very much the dominant side of that, that to be a, to be a good citizen, to be, you know, they expected people with an education to give back to the community. So this right. focus was on your place as a citizen of this nation and your education made you a better democratic citizen. And we have now fully nice. moved into a space where there's very little of that conversation and there needs to be a lot more of that conversation because it became, and some of this is around the cost and other realities that the private good part of it, that what is it going to do for me? How much money can I earn? What is my career going to be? It's me, me, me. And so the conversation around that public good part of education and the democratizing effect that it has. So when you go back then to West Virginia and think about these consequences, there's the immediate consequences. And then there's these bigger consequences. Like, what does it mean for the residents and the citizens in that state that this is their university where they should be able to study any number of things? And now you're taking that away. It's a problem because it is taking their the choice they should have away. And it's, it, it's not serving the state. And it's very short- you know, it's a short-minded um, thing. That's not the word, but you know what I'm getting at. Um, you're there's going to be long-term consequences and damage for the state. Long-term damage, yeah. And these are people like, look, my dad is born and raised in West Virginia, and so I do know a little bit about the state and the pressures there from the industry that has supported that state in the past, and it has been a painful move away from prior work. Right 
So how are we going to educate the citizens here for a new for a new kind of career? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to I just loved uh, all of that. That was great. In particular, the commentary on the public good and um, <clears throat> the beef I have is I, I fully understand that universities are businesses. Right. I spend so much of my time looking at talking about budget. Right. Um, but what we've we fail to talk about is the role of universities as philanthropies, right? We, we we produce, you know, it's the weird tension is between students as customers, which I really don't like that model at all, um, and the products that we create. And so we we benefit society. And so I think the rhetoric is so much around the business side, and it, it should be more around the philanthropy side. And, and with that in mind, um, I look at Randolph College and I see this is a small school, right? Which, you know, logically it shouldn't, you know, and it's not one you hear about in the press. It has a, a pretty significant endowment. It's undergraduate only uh, and seems to be very focused on the liberal arts, um, broadly defined. Uh, so maybe if you'd speak to that, uh, you know, Randolph College today and, and what maybe what it offers us in terms of thinking about how we can promote and support the liberal arts. <laughs> Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of passion about my undergrad education. You know, uh, also let me note for the for the audience, um, I applied to ten institutions as a for my undergrad process. Didn't know if I would get into any of them. I had no idea, but. I only applied to one that was single gender and it was Randolph Macon Women's College. So when people think I made some intentional choice around that, it really wasn't. I just really liked what it offered. And I liked the uh, conversations I had with someone there. And so uh, side note, you know, that's the setup. Like I wasn't someone who just applied only to women's colleges or had some very specific reason about that. And it just turned out it was, you know, a little bit of a little bit of luck that, you know, it was such a beautiful match to my needs. And, and I ended up having a great experience there. So fast forward, um, they did go through a co-ed process, um, you know, a little over a decade ago, um, which is a whole other conversation we could have about, you know, what that, how that went down and, you know, how people felt about it, obviously. Um, so it is co-ed now. So it's very interesting. I did go back for a reunion and between then and now, and, you know, I was very curious to see, you know, was that really going to change the feel? Was that really going to change the culture of the place? And as far as I could tell, as it turns out, a lot of what made the institution uh, the way it was in terms of the culture that we all lived was actually not gendered as much as we might have sort of thought because it was a woman's college. You know, what it really meant was every major here is open to you and you're not going to go and be a physics major or a bio major or a chemistry major or any major where you'll have faculty say things to you like my colleagues did at other institutions. You don't belong here. You don't belong in this class. You don't belong in this major. I hear this today, that there are still women getting comments like that from faculty in engineering departments and other departments, uh, like, why are you even here? And so that was, I think, the more powerful, it, it's not even something we articulated at the time. It's that my colleagues who went on to med school and went on to doctorates and all kinds of science and what we would call STEM now, it's that they were given, you know, full range of that education without any idea that you didn't belong here as a as a woman. Um, so anyway, that all to say, 
they have done some really interesting things there, which I follow closely. Uh, most recently, they launched, uh, and speaking of curricula and what works for today's students, we know that it's hard for students to manage um, a load of five classes, say on average at a time. And so they went and created this take two program where they split sort of a traditional semester into two shorter segments and the students take two classes in the first half of what we might call a semester, like 16 week time period. And then there's a week, I think a break, and then they do two more classes. So they meet four days a week. So you have to consider how that's more focused and more intensive. You know, the student, you're in that class more in that short amount of time. And so I think we are in the second or third year of that. And thus far, the metrics, uh, which, you know, we live and die by our data and our metrics. And so they are <laughs> very positive. Their retention is way up. Their enrollment is up. Um, everything is looking positive. And I think part of it is due to this creative approach. Um, and students are saying it's easier for them to do um, better academically and to and to stay the course because they can focus on two things at a time rather than sort of half getting five, you know, like being feeling like they're all over the place with five classes. So I follow what they're doing there. And I think they're, you know, there's been a lot of creativity and passion and it's, you know, it's the results are, are positive. So um, yeah, I, I, I love it. And I sort of consider it like as a comparison, there's so many small liberal arts colleges, what are, you know, these folks doing um, to stay relevant? Yeah, they've really got to look at models. They've got to find their niches and define who they are. And of course, you and I yeah. talked about that over coffee a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to thank you so much for this. I, you know, it's always a delight talking with you, Jackie, and your deep, vast knowledge on these issues and, and your clear passion is really, um, really um, inspiring. And I do hope to have you back on the show and talk yeah. about some of this in more depth. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's been so much fun. I'll come back anytime. Like there's so much higher ed is never dull. Let's put it that way. Like it's ever changing. <laughs>